Well, um, one happy Labor Day weekend to everybody. It's been a really busy week, but a good week. Um, I've been over at the church, I think, three times, maybe four, actually, this week, just kind of preparing for our first in-person gathering, which is on the 26th. We had our staff in the space on Wednesday, and it was just, it felt really good, I will say, just to be back there and to kind of figure out, you know, kind of the logistics of how things are going to go. And there's a lot of details, you know, with COVID. COVID just kind of ups the ante on um, making work just a little bit harder in that space. And I know we can probably all relate to that. And I sometimes feel like, man, even though in a lot of ways things feel really great and, you know, I feel like the weather's beautiful. I feel all this gratitude for the blessing in my life. Like COVID just continues to make things harder. And so I was talking with one of my my fellow pastor colleagues, A.D. Wasink, this last week. And I know many of you know A.D. She's come and preached um, here in Ann Arbor before. She's the pastor of one of our sister churches in Iowa City. And we were chatting on the phone and she just said, oh, Emily, COVID makes everything just harder. And and this is what struck me that she said, she said, you know, Emily, I feel like I know all the things to do, like no matter how much meditating I do, no matter how many walks I take, no matter how present I'm just trying to be in my life and with my loved ones and with God, there's just an element of the pandemic that's ongoing that is just like a low level suffering. And no matter what we do, it's just present. And so I found myself just kind of chewing over that in the last week or so because I don't, I don't think of myself as suffering in the way that a lot of people are because of the particular privileges that I have. Rachel and I both have jobs and our health. But yet I think AD was touching on something that's, that's right. And I've started to realize how much we've adapted. And there's so much that I don't even notice how much that I've changed my own life or that we've changed our lives because you just sort of adapt to an ongoing level of just plain old fashioned suffering that is present just because a pandemic is fatiguing and most things are just a little bit different. And something Rachel and I have been kind of saying to each other is like, even people who are like, okay, like she and I, like, we're doing pretty well. But even people who are doing okay in the pandemic are just not completely okay, right? No one is just at their best. And I know some of my friends, myself included, sometimes just find ourselves maybe having a stronger emotional reaction to things than than we're used to. And it's just this reminder, especially as I'm interacting with others, that like, oh yeah, nobody's really okay. And so this idea of just low level suffering that we're adapting to, um, it had me thinking about the story of Job, which ironically I think was one of the last sermons uh, series that I preached before in the before times. So I was kind of mulling over Job. And I thought, well, most of us are probably somewhat familiar with that story. I'm not going to go through it in detail, but just in a nutshell, Job was the man who had it all and then lost it all. Right? He lost his home and his wealth and his family and his cattle, his influence in the town, which seemed to have been pretty tremendous. And he lost his health and it was like in the blink of an eye he had to just sort of reevaluate his entire world and how he fit into it and while i don't think any of us here can like completely relate to job's sort of compounding losses you know maybe to one or two of them 
we can all relate to having our world sort of changed overnight and then having to sort of deal with the ongoing consequences of that. And at first, Job had some friends who were helpful to him in the way that friends who are good friends know how to be. Right? They came and they sat with Job in silence for a week and just were with him in his suffering. But then as time wore on, Job's friends grew a little less sympathetic and were a little less helpful. And so Job found himself in this place of just feeling alone and afflicted. And so he started talking to God. And as he started talking to God and trying to make sense of his life and what had happened, he was forced to face the shallowness of the spirituality that he had inherited. It's Job had, you know, he'd had a life of such incredible privilege that it's like he hadn't even suspected how much his his own faith had been shaped by that, right? By that abundance that he had. And that his faith had been really built on this orderly world that had worked for him. And so he had embraced that as like how things were meant to be. And so in light of this new suffering, Job found himself feeling really untethered and feeling like he just no longer even understood the God that he had worshiped for most of his life. And I know I've definitely felt that way at different times in my own life. I know many of you have as well. It's like when you're faced with new information that causes you to have to sort of reevaluate how you see God and how you work to enact justice in the world. And sometimes even what is considered just gets redefined, right? And so for me, Job personifies every person of faith who, when confronted with an absurd disaster in life, finds himself, themselves with a choice, right? When you're kind of faced with that, you either have to throw away your faith or you have to forge a new path forward. And part of Job's forging a new path required him to discard the idea that suffering only happened to bad people. Right? He had to learn that hard times come to anyone and everyone. So we're going to look at a little um, passage here. This is from early on in Job's misfortunes as he's trying to make sense of it. This is in Job 12. He says, I wish my life could be the same as it was a few months ago when God watched over me and cared for me. God's light shined above me so that I could walk through the darkness. I wish for the days when I was successful, when I enjoyed God's friendship and blessing in my home. God all-powerful was with me then, and my children were all around me. Life was good. It was so good that I washed my feet in cream and had plenty of the finest oils. I thought, you know, I kind of feel Job when he says, I wish my life could be the same as it was a few months ago. I mean, in some ways, I wish that, and in some ways, I don't. But I feel that sentiment like in my bones, right? He wants the before times on some level. And I get that, but I think then that Job's idea that follows that, that like things went well for me then because God watched over me and cared for me, I find that less helpful because that implies then that God doesn't watch over you and doesn't care for you when things are going badly in your life. And that isn't consistent with the overall picture of God that's been passed down to us. So Job now has to make sense of this world where God can both care for you and bad things can happen. And when any of us are faced with that reality, it can make us feel pretty discombobulated. And yet it's also an opportunity for our faith and for our understanding of God's love for us 
to ferment into something even richer. Because like Job, we, we kind of start to discover the God of the oppressed, which is maybe the most authentic identity of the God of the Hebrew people, right? the God of the oppressed. So I was reading um, a rabbi named Rabbi Moshe Greenberg, who wrote this about Job. I'm going to put it into the chat so you can see it. He said, how can faith nurtured in prosperity prove truly deep rooted and not merely a spiritual adjunct of good fortune? The book of Job tells how one man suddenly awakened to the anarchy rampant in the world. And yet his attachment to God outlived the ruin of his tidy system. So that makes us ask, well, how? How did Job's attachment to God manage to outlive the ruin of his tidy theological boxes? And I think there are two major reasons that I think of offhand. The first one was Job was willing to reject ideas that didn't work or that caused him harm. But he had a certain amount of say, mental or psychological flexibility. He rejected the ideas that weren't working for him or that caused him harm. And second, he continued to talk to God, right? And he spoke honestly and sometimes accusingly and angrily and despairingly. And I think maybe that created just enough openness for the divine to nudge Job into a healthier faith. Oh, I think Susan told me that went just to panelists. Oh, you know how I like tell everybody to like make sure it goes to all panelists and attendees? That's what I didn't do. So let me put that in there for you. How can faith nurtured in prosperity prove truly deep-rooted and not merely a spiritual adjunct of good fortune? The book of Job tells how one man suddenly awakened to the anarchy rampant in the world and his attachment to God outlived the ruin of his tidy system. Right, so we see that Job continues to talk to God and is really like kind of trying to take God to task. But there was enough openness in the relationship that we see God starting to nudge judge, right? Or nudge Job, just sort of like guiding him into some different thinking. And the way that God did that nudging was by giving Job a pretty thorough dressing down, which is not at all what I've experienced when I've talked to God in times of disenchantment. And it can feel a little abrasive to read it, especially um, as people who may not be in the same kind of privileged position that I imagine Job is in. And what I imagine Job to be in by the description is like, there, there's nobody in our church who's in that kind of privileged position, right? Job was incredibly wealthy and influential. For Job, I think this dressing down, I, I read it as like God's grace for him, right? To help him understand that he's not a friend of God because of anything that he's done to earn that status, but simply because God loves him. Right? And so people who have been called saints all their lives or who see themselves as like, look, all my prosperity becomes because I'm such a man of God and God loves me. Right? If you've been called a saint all your life, sometimes you might need God to remind them that they didn't earn God's affection by anything they've done. Right? And people who have been called sinners all their lives, um, for example, maybe queer people like me, we usually need God to remind us that we are, in fact, saints, right? but there's nothing about us that inherently keeps us from God's love or the family of God. So the privileged or in the places of privilege that we occupy, we need a different message from God 
than in the places where we experience oppression. And so I think Job probably needed to hear that he wasn't all that. And that even with his wealth and his health and his power, even with those things were stripped away, he was still worthy of God's friendship. And so I think there's a couple of invitations for us in Job's story. First, I think there's an invitation for us to deepen our understanding that suffering and feeling inadequate are just part of the shared human experience. And I feel like we know that as a church on a lot of levels, but sometimes it's helpful to be reminded that suffering is a shared human experience. And, and it's an experience that God entered into with us so that we can experience the full compassion and empathy of the divine. Um, second, we talked about Job, you know, just managing to hold on to this little strand of connection that he had with the creator, even when he was angry and questioning. And I feel encouraged by that story to just continue to talking, talk to God through the day, just knowing that God can handle whatever it is that we have to say. And I think we can take Rabbi Greenberg's words to heart, right? That we can trust that a deep rooted faith most often forms in hardship. And so we can keep our eyes open for signs of that as we are making meaning together over the coming months. And the third thing um, is, is I think we can practice some self-compassion. Right? Job's friends had a very limited amount of compassion for him. And so Job had to kind of tap into himself and find an internal well of self-compassion. And he had some rituals in his culture that were helpful, right? He tore his clothing and he sat with ashes on himself just to indicate his not okayness. Um, and I think that's helpful, but our culture doesn't have some of those things. And I think it's just helpful to remember that almost no one is operating with a full tank right now, right? And so sometimes we have to offer ourselves the kind of compassion that maybe we wish that we could get elsewhere but that we're not able to get because nobody's really operating at full capacity. So there's a, a psychotherapist named Dr. Kristen Neff, who's at UT Austin, and she developed a self-compassion mantra for herself that I thought some of us might find helpful. In the pandemic, she noticed that some of the internal voices of shame that we all have to some degree, that those were amplified for her, right? These are the, the not enough voices the, the voices in your head that are telling you that you're not doing enough, you're not saving enough money, you're not parenting enough, you're not working hard enough, those shaming voices. And so she said that when she experiences negative emotions or thoughts, she started saying this to herself. So I'm going to put this in the chat. So this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I gave, give myself the compassion I need. I just think that's it's just like a perfect prayer or mantra to take the place of sacrificing our own well-being, right? It's something that we can do in a moment to practice compassion for ourselves. And it's a, it's a, a prayer of sorts that each of us can sort of offer ourselves with gentle hands placed on open hearts. Um, it sounds cheesy. But I've been in therapy long enough to <laughs> add some of these skills taught where my therapist would be like, okay, where do you feel the stress? You know, like maybe place your hands on your heart or on your solar plexus and just practice that self-compassion. And it actually is really helpful to sort of ground yourself back to your body, to let yourself know that things are okay, and to say something like, this is a moment of suffering. 
It's a part of life. May I give myself compassion? So in lieu of a, a meditation today, I'm just going to invite us to do that. Like if you would like to just place your hands over your heart, maybe over your solar plexus, if that feels better to you. And I'm just going to say this a couple of times and you can say it with me or just receive it. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. Say it again. This is the moment. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. Right. Well, if you find that helpful, you can just kind of tuck that into your tools as you go through the week.